Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. Today on the show, I am joined by the New York-based artist and writer Justin Beal. Late last year, Justin's first book, Sand Future, was published by MIT Press, and it was, and I say this without exaggeration, not only probably my favorite book of 2021, but also one of the best books about architecture and design that I've read in a long, long time. When I wrote my write-up of the best books of the year for Ion Design last month, Sand Future was the first one that I knew needed to be included. It's a book that's hard to describe, as you'll hear in this conversation. To put it simply, it's a book about the architect Minoru Yamasaki, the Japanese-American architect likely most well-known for designing the World Trade Center twin towers that were hit on September 11th. But this is not a book about September 11th, and it's not even just a biography of Yamasaki. Written in a fragmentary style, Justin mixes anecdotes from Yamasaki's life with moments from Justin's own life, tracing his development as an artist living in New York City that somehow all comes together in a poetic meditation on how we relate to the built environment that surrounds us. It's literary, it's critical, it's historical, and I truly can't recommend it enough. So in this episode, Justin and I talk about how this book came together. We talk about the process of writing and researching it. We talk about how he developed this writing style and what he hoped to achieve with the book and how he worked through including so much about his own life in the book. We talk about how it enters, how it both enters into and subverts what we think of as an architecture book or even a book of design history. And we also talk about how this fits into Justin's larger body of work, how studying architecture helped him develop his art studio practice and where he sees this type of work going forward. If you like the show, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for superfans. They give you access to all sorts of bonus content like a monthly newsletter, early episodes, transcripts, and exclusive bonus interviews, all while helping to financially support this show. So if you like Scratching the Surface, if you want to see it continue, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to sign up. Thanks so much for your support. Thanks for listening. And here is my conversation with Justin Beal. Sand Future, which is, I told you this in an email, is one of the kind of most interesting architecture and design books that I've read this year, maybe ever. Um, I loved it. I think it's a great book. And I sometimes struggle with describing it to people. I'm kind of telling everybody to read this book. And I'm curious how you describe it. When you talk about Sand Future, what do you say that this book is? Uh, Well, thank you for saying that. Uh, But I struggle with it too. It's been one of the great challenges of putting this book out into the world because I think it is, uh, it's very easy to describe it as a book about Minoru Yamasaki, which it is. And uh, I think that's a, a, a very easy idea for people to kind of grasp. But the difficulty is that there's also a lot more going on and only about 50% of the book is actually dedicated to the story of Yamasaki's life and his work and so there's this whole other system of information uh that's more personal uh that that's more tangential that deals with all these other subjects and so it's been really a a challenge to kind of encapsulate that in a quick 
elevator pitch. Um, and I'm still, I'm still working on that language. And, you know, also because I think there's a certain set of expectations about what a book about architecture is like. Right. And a certain set of expectations about what a book from MIT Press is like. And I think this, this book is very consciously trying to push both of those envelopes. Yeah. Um, so uh, I don't really have a great answer to that <laughs> question, but, um, but it's something that we're still, I'm still working on and, and everyone who's been involved in this project is still kind of working on how to present it um, to a public. Because I think, yeah. uh, you know, I joke often that the, the comment that I get most frequently about this book is, is something to the effect of, wow, this is so much more interesting than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> um, or some more readable or, or whatever. Yeah. And, um, you know, which I, I totally do not take offense at because I, I, my, part of my motivation in this whole project is that I've always found that the most interesting books to me about architecture are, are, are books that come from outside of the field of architecture. Mm. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that for me has a lot to do with the fact that you know, I, I think my experience and I imagine other people's experience of architecture is very personal. Yeah. And books that produce from within the field of architecture are by and large very impersonal. Mm -hmm. And 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 so I think part of what I was trying to do here was to write the kind of book about architecture that I've always wanted to read. And and you know many of those my models and thinking about that come not from how architects write about architecture, but how other authors write about architecture, like James Salter or Donald Bartome or Susan Sontag, or, you know, all these mm -hmm. people, Teju Cole, who were writing yeah. about the built environment from a different perspective that seems to me so much more in line with my experience of, of architecture. You basically just touched on like my next like 10 questions <laughs> in there. So you set up, you set Sorry. up everything that I want to talk about, which is, which is great. Um, I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that. And so, so yeah, 50% of the book is sort of about, uh, roughly 50% of the book is it's, about it's Yamasaki. It's pretty close. It's, you know, it's, it wasn't my intention, but I, I did it at one point look at it quite specifically and it's almost exactly 50 50 it's just sort of balanced out that way interesting that's that's really interesting i don't i don't know if i would have guessed that reading it actually um and so so yamasaki for people who don't know architect uh you know probably most well known for the world trade center twin towers um and you're writing sort of a biography sort of a it's sort of analytical sometimes it's sort of a reflection on him and his work but then mixed in with that are these sort of memoiristic uh kind of not chapters fragments i guess about you moving to new york about your own education about your own work about your own experience encountering yamasaki's work and all of this is sort of jumbled together you know it would be very easy to write this book with a series of chapters that are about you know, Yamasaki that maybe are interspersed with chapters about your work. And I'm, I'm interested in, in the structure of this kind of writing this as fragments. There are no chapters. It's this kind of continuous narrative that's broken up and interspersed with these sort of different positions that you take. 
How did you think about that? And how did you arrive at that as the way to tell these stories? All right. So the structure of this book is, is as you say, you, there are these kind of jumps between right. different subject matter. So you spend part of the time with Yamasaki and his story, which kind of unfolds in more or less chronological order over the course of the book. And then there are these um, cut into that are these bits of more personal narrative uh, and then sort of digressions on other subjects. And I think that structure was all kind of always part of this project. I, mm. um, I didn't want to write a kind of traditional biography of Yamasaki. I just felt like I wasn't really the right person to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and my instinct from the beginning had always been that I needed to write this in a kind of very specific way where I was pulling different pieces of information together and kind of that might not logically fit together immediately, but that all kind of comprise part of a, of a larger story. And there was a moment, you know, when I was, there were a couple kind of key moments in that process. And the, the first was uh, when I had decided to kind of start working on this book and decided it was going to be about Yamasaki. I, I, you know, I, I was quite sure at that time that I was working on what would be the first English language book about <laughs> Yamasaki in, in 40 years. And I was right. quite um, pleased with myself for, for kind of coming up with that idea. And when I was two years into the, the process of writing, I um, was told very gently by a friend that, that there was another book about Yamasaki in the works <laughs> and that it was quite a bit further ahead than mine. And that sort of sent me personally into kind of a, into a bit of a tailspin. Uh, right. Because I had just sort of walked away from this other career and, and taken this huge risk to write this book and now somebody else was doing it. Pretty quickly, I recognized that it was one of those rare moments where like a project kind of tells you what it wants to be. And mm. that this other book, which was written by um, a guy called Dale Allen Geyer, who's mm -hmm. since become a friend, it's published by Yale. And it's a great book. It's exactly the kind of comprehensive monograph that, that needs to exist for students and for scholars to kind of ha to, to have a complete view of Yamasaki's work. And the fact that it exists really kind of took this burden off of my shoulders uh, of fully representing all of Yamasaki's work, accounting for every building, accounting for every critical opinion. And instead it sort of liberated me to um, allow these other parts, uh, uh, other ideas to come into the book and have it be sort of more about my personal uh, more, you know, subjective view of Yamasaki's place in history. I have two questions that are may or may not be related. It's in, I'm curious about when you kind of heard that that this other person was working on this book. Um, you know, and you, and you know, you felt felt deflated, and that this book is that comprehensive, you know, kind of book. Is that was that ever the book that you actually wanted to write? Like, did, did you think being the first that you had to do that? Or did you always have this sense that this book you were going to write was more personal? Do you know what I mean? Yes, I know. I, okay. I, I know exactly what you mean. I can't say that I, 
I, I can't really answer the, that question with confidence because I don't think <laughs> right. I knew at that point exactly what I was doing. Um, and, and, I, and, and okay. um, you know, I realized, I, I knew that I had sort of, I felt very strongly that there was something in these pieces of information that I was pulling together. And yeah. Yes. Okay. So that's my, that's my next question then, which is what was it about Yamasaki that drew you in that caused you, and I want to talk about your other work, you know, a bit later, but that caused you to kind of step away from this work that you were doing to focus on this, not having ever written an architectural biography before. What, can you just talk about that poll? What was it that kind of said, like, I need to do something with this man? Well, it wasn't originally him. Um, oh, interesting. And, and so, so when I first had this idea of stepping away from the studio practice that I'd had leading, leading up to the point when I began this book, I, I had, it began with my, me giving myself a year to kind of work on a writing project. And it wasn't mm. entirely clear to me what that project was going to be. But the initial sort of center of that focus was on sick building syndrome, which is, still remains mm. part of the book. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, in, in this very circuitous way, kind of led me to thinking about architects who had struggled with chronic illness, which led me actually first mm. to, to Stornley Cracklight, who's the protagonist of Peter Greenaway's film, Belly of an Architect, and, and who, who, who finds out that he has stomach cancer in the, over the course of the film. And then strangely back to Yamasaki, who I've always been really interested in, and I can talk about why, but, you know, who, and Yamasaki also struggled with, uh, you know, he had chronic, he had ulcers and then eventually had, had stomach cancer himself. And so in this very weird way, I kind of got back to Yamasaki. Mm. And then I looked more closely at him than I ever had before. I'd always been interested in him primarily because, uh, you know, I had an undergraduate degree in architecture and I, immediately after I graduated from college, I moved into an apartment that was two blocks below the World Trade Center. And I only lived there for three or four weeks because it was the summer of 2001. Mm -hmm. but, but I remember thinking at the time, I remember standing underneath the World Trade Center towers, which, are, which were such uh, gorgeous objects, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and thinking how strange it was that I had just completed this undergraduate degree in architecture and I had no idea who designed these two buildings mm. and and so and you know gradually over the course of 20 years I, I connected Yamasaki back to buildings like the Eastern Airlines Terminal in Boston or, or Robertson Hall at Princeton or uh, Century City in Los Angeles and of course to Pruitt Igo and all mm -hmm. of these other things and and I, so I, as I returned kind of looking at him more closely uh I just realized how fascinating his story was, both personally and architecturally, right. and how strange it was that no one had ever really explained it to me. <laughs> um, and, and so the, that's what kind of really drew me in and shifted the center of, the, of this project to him. When you found out that somebody else was working on this book. And you said earlier in this conversation, you could write the book that you wanted to write. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that when you kind of realized, 
I'm not writing a comprehensive biography. Somebody else is doing that. This can be something wholly new. How, how did you kind of decide to bring in your own life into this in ways that are very directly related to Yamasaki in ways that are, you know, tangentially in ways that as someone who, you know, this is the first time we're talking, seem like they have no relationship to how did you kind of think about how these two stories could be woven together? How did that, that kind of develop? It developed very slowly and I was very reluctant to include the more personal parts of the book mm. at first, uh, not b- because of any trepidation about oversharing, just because <laughs> I was like, why would anyone be interested in this? And, and, and is it, um, you know, why would I right, right, right. Juxtapose, juxtapose my I get life it. to this extraordinary other life? And I think that, um, if this kind of goes back to that question of writing the kind of book about architecture that I've always wanted to read, which sort of does somehow account for your personal experience mm. of the built environment. And, and the only way to kind of really account for that would, was to put myself into the book in some way. And, um, and I found, you know, as a writer, I found that incredibly hard to do. Mm. Um, I was like, I felt sort of allergic to writing about myself in the first person and, yeah. and actually had to write most of that in the third person to get it out and then go back after the fact. And oh, that's really interesting. First person because I, I just, yeah, there was a, I don't know if it was kind of modesty or self-consciousness or, or something, but. Um, I mean, and I noticed, I noticed also, and we can cut this out if this is not public information, but it seems like you changed names of, of family and, and your child and your partner are very present in the book, but that's not their real names, it seems like. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm happy to talk about that. I, I, I think it's an interesting, I mean, it's a question that I get a lot. And um, the answer is not particularly complicated. I, I think my wife, Jane, and my daughter, Rosie, uh, who are Nina and Zoe in the book, are, you know, they're both their own women right, who exist right. in the world and have their own story. And I felt that they deserved a measure of privacy, even if makes sense. anyone who knows me knows exactly who they are. I just wanted to create a little bit of distance. Um, it's not, you know, it's not, a, it's not done in order to take kind of license to kind of push things into fiction because it's, you know, everything is based in fact, but it just felt important in the, in the case of those two that they, um, have one degree of removal. (laughs) And I didn't, I did not read it as fiction or, you know, moving away from, from memoir in any way, but I did wonder if there was this kind of self-consciousness about the, the personal and if that was, that was part of it. Um, So it's interesting. Can you talk more about writing it in the third person first? How was that helpful in kind of getting out your side of this story? Uh, it, It just allowed me to, I don't. It, I mean, it's such a silly grammatical trick, but <laughs> right. but it allowed it allowed me to feel just a, enough enough distance to feel like I was kind of looking back at at myself mm-hmm. from that from the outside. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure people who have more experience writing this way have, have better ways of articulating this, but I just didn't. Uh, I felt less less self conscious writing that way. Yeah. 
I, I asked that question purely selfishly as somebody who has has written a lot from a more position as the the critic uh, or the journalist and have an interest in writing from a more kind of personal place and that it is a a very deep struggle for me to do that. And it's interesting to hear that. And and I think that's why I came to your book and liked your book so much is because it, it did talk about these subjects that I'm very interested in from a very sort of personal, personal place. Um, and so I'm kind of interested in that process. That's why I keep asking you kind of these these like process questions. No, it's um, fine. I mean, they're 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 great questions. I'm I, I mean I I don't want to give away anything from the book because I do want want people to read it. But I'm I was I was struck. The book opens with Hurricane Sandy and being in New York during Hurricane Sandy, of which I was also, and so I was immediately kind of drawn in that way. But I was I was kind of struck. I was reading the book trying to figure out kind of what you were just talking about it's like why why are these two stories together why do i care so much about justin's story (laughs) who is somebody who i don't know but i i can't seem to put this book down and then there's this moment that's later in the book that i would have imagined where you say that you lived in lower manhattan and that you were in new york on september 11th and that you photographed the towers and that was a very sort of revelatory moment and i'm curious about the decision to kind of withhold that information um and and then kind of the reveal of that and this kind of you know much deeper personal connection than it is immediately let on yeah i um so the role of 9-11 in in this story is um one that I spent a lot of time thinking about, mm-hmm. and uh, I wrote there. There was at certain there was at one point a lot more of the book that was about mm-hmm. uh, the time after nine eleven, mm-hmm. and there were sort of two concerns I had with that. One is that something something like 9-11, if you put too, if, there, if there's too much of it in a book, it doesn't really take very much at all. It becomes a book about that. <laughs> exactly. Right? I get it. And, and I was very, I, I, I was, I really didn't want that to be what this book is. Um, and, you know, both because too much ink has already been spilled on that topic and also because it's been the event through which so much of the writing about Yamasaki right. had been framed, right? So it was very important to me to kind of cut that down to a minimum. So there are actually mm. only two, the, the only scenes that relate directly to 9-11 are the actual morning of, and then this uh, scene when I returned to the apartment right. a week right. later to get some stuff. And also, you know, similarly, the, the choice to not include that photograph in the book for the same reason is that if you put a photo, 9-11 photograph in um, it just it's it, it has this way of kind of sucking all the rest of the air out of the room and and you know one of the great challenges with writing about Yamasaki is how do you hold how do you maintain an equilibrium between the really extraordinary fact that this one man designed two major projects, the World Trade Center and Prude Igo, that were both blown up yeah. on television. Yeah. Which is just, you know, 
yeah. mind-boggling. But then how, but how do you also kind of hold that in balance with the fact that A, those two projects were probably the two least representative of his practice mm. that he ever made. Mm-hmm. And also that, that, that they were only two projects in a really kind of prolific, hugely influential career. So you have to kind of let both of those things coexist. And, and, and it's very easy to let too much weight fall on the 9-11. And so, you know, I, I was doing everything I could because you don't have to. It's, it, it, it's present even in its absence, right? Right, right. Um, I, that's, what, that's exactly what I was going to say because you're right. And I was impressed by that withholding and how, how little you actually spend talking about it. Yet it's, it does hang over the book, you know, and not a, not of anything you did or didn't do it's just there and I, I was you mentioned Teju Cole earlier who's a favorite writer of mine also and I think he's sort of a master at um kind of diverting your gaze to let the thing just kind of sit there you know in the background but not actually ever say it but you know it's it's kind of hanging there and that's kind of I'm realizing this as you're talking that's what what makes your book so powerful also is that it is it's this very small part but it's still just you know, it's there. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not saying yeah, anything well, I mean, I new, think, but you know, I think, I think Tisha Cole's book, open city mm-hmm. and Joseph O'Neill's book, Netherlands are probably the two best books about New York after nine 11. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And for me, and they were both very important books for me. And I was, and I, as I was sort of thinking about how to mm. approach my own book and, and both of them, you know, the nine 11 exists. Right, but it's barely right. it's barely mentioned. You don't have to mention right. it. It's this, it's in the atmosphere of the book if you write the book right. Right, so. right. How did how did writing this book and you you write about spending time in the archives, visiting these buildings, kind of immersing yourself in his life? How did this change how you thought about Yamasaki? Mm. I mean, the process of re- researching somebody in so in such depth is, is really quite an intimate experience. You get to know a lot of these details about the person, but at the same time, he was quite withholding uh, mm. in terms of personal information, at least at least in what remains in the archive. And so, you know, what I was continually impressed by is the way in which he was able to kind of accomplish the work Mm. that he did under extraordinarily adverse circumstances. Um, You know, this this point that I talk about in the book when he and his wife, Terry, get married on Friday, December 5th in 1941, spent the night dancing on the roof of the Hotel Astor, and then Sunday morning is Pearl Harbor, and everything radically kind of shifts beneath their feet. And Yamasaki is working for Shreve Lemon Harmon um, on a massive military installation while simultaneously trying to help his parents leave Seattle so they won't be sent to the internment camp. And just to imagine this experience of having your parents living on the floor of your apartment so they don't get sent to an internment camp while you're working for the government that considers your family an enemy combatant. It's just, it, it, you know, it's almost 
impossible for me to kind of wrap my brain around that. And, and so, you know, I developed an enormous admiration for his ability to kind of continue to persevere through those mm -hmm. circumstances and, and to um, be a, a, as prolific and successful as he was. And at the same time, as, uh, as an architect, you know, he, they're, they're, he's unique among architects in terms of willingness to admit his mistakes, right? Mm, and the, mm -hmm. you know, and his career is marked by these kind of spectacular successes and spectacular failures. And some he designed some great buildings, and he designed some that you know he he says it himself. He says it at one point. I designed some real dogs, and and I think that he in that way I, I find him to be a very sympathetic figure because you know so much of the story that we always hear about architecture is a kind of this really paper thin heroic story mm -hmm. yeah a and you know so much of what interests me about the process of making things objects buildings books whatever you're putting it out into the world is how fraught that is and how much failure there is in it and how mm -hmm. much you know insecurity there is in it and and when you start to look at his life more closely you can kind of feel that and you can feel it weighing on him and you can feel how much it means to him in this way that you don't get when you're looking at this um when you're consuming the kind of architectural narrative that's most often presented to us right which right, is just right. like heroic success right this this is the last question i think that i have about the book and i want to kind of then talk about how this fits into your your work more generally but i'm you started at the beginning kind of talking about wanting to write an architecture, a book about architecture that was pushing up against what we expect about an architecture book. I'm very curious that this was a book published by MIT Press, when I think this is a, a very unusual book for them. And I'm I'm kind of curious, I'm I'm struggling to articulate this question. I'm I'm curious kind of how how writing this, how you thought about sort of both entering into an established architectural discourse and then also like how you wanted to break away from it. You know, you know, you know what you mm -hmm. mean? Like, you know, you're, you're very much part of a larger dialogue now, but this also feels like something wholly different. How did you kind of think about, you know, where this book sits in sort of like architecture writing? <laughs> was, you know I, what I mean? You know what I mean? That's I, I mean, a good question. I, yeah, sure. I know what you mean. I was thinking more about how on earth am I going to get this to be published, right? Let's not put the cart before the horse here. Right, but, right. right. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I, I was uh, I was trying to uh, hold both of those things in balance, right? And I think that in many ways, um this book is, is belongs as much to the sort of genre uh, of of kind of lonely man wandering <laughs> streets of Manhattan as it right, does yeah. the genre of architecture, right? And I, you know, I say that slightly tongue in cheek, but mm -hmm. um, there that is a very established history, and and, very, and you know, a lot of the books that I was thinking about a lot before. I began writing it 
come from that that sort of space, right? You know, I mentioned Netherland and Open mm-hmm. City, but also Ten Over Four by Ben Lerner or yeah. Staten Island by Tom McCarthy, yeah. um, which of course then connects to Here's New York by E.B. White, or you know, mm-hmm. it's it's this long-standing kind of yeah. Tradition. You're helping you're helping me understand why I loved your book so much because you're just naming all my favorite books now too. So <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, and yeah. and so. Um, here we are, two middle-aged men talking right. about right. middle-aged men wandering the streets of New York. Right, but, right. It all makes sense um, now. It's, it is a rich literary tradition. Uh, so I, you know, I don't think the the books that made me feel like I could take this project on were not architecture books. And then I, I think I got, um, but it, it, architecture is, you know, has been in, in the, an odd way the center of focus of my work for, for the last 20 years, even though m- almost all of that work has been outside of the field of architecture. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I felt, um, and, you know, and, and with Yamasaki at the center, this is a book that very much belongs in that sort of architectural space. So it was, it was trying to kind of bring those things together. And you, um, I mean, I was extraordinarily lucky in this process to have had the editor that I had, Tom Weaver, um, who, who I think really understood what I was trying to do and understood that it was unlike the MIT press book that you might imagine, right. but also could fit in within that umbrella. And, um, you know, that was something that was, was about which there was a lot of conversation, you know, and, yeah. and there also, um, it's not just the, the style and the structure of this book. There's also other, um, formatting things. It doesn't, this book doesn't have a bibliography. It doesn't right. have footnotes. It doesn't have a title that is, this, this, is, this is the subject of the book, colon, right. this is the thesis of the book. Right. Um, and so many, in many key ways, it's a kind of working against some of the traditions of academic publishing, um, but which I like, you know, yeah. and, and I think that it, um, I like to think that I adhered to the sort of academic rigor and intellectual kind of standards of an academic press without having to conform to the format. You just said something that I I want to come back to. You said that your work has been architectural over the last 20 years, even though it's been outside of architecture. And I want to talk about that a little bit. You studied architecture at Yale. Um, and I saw that you also went through the, the Whitney ISP independent study program, study at University yeah. of Southern California. I'm curious about your interest in architecture and kind of studying architecture at Yale. Did you, were you thinking you were going to be an architect? Was that sort of sort of the plan? And can you talk about sort of this move from studying architecture and moving into a more sort of fine art world? Yeah, sure. Uh, I don't think the plan was ever to be an architect. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I I really liked. I still like the kind of pedagogical model of the undergraduate architecture major. Uh, you know, I like this, the idea of this umbrella, which under which you can study film theory mm-hmm. and structural engineering and 
also have a kind of hands-on studio practice. Um, right. Uh, you know, that's that's what I wanted to do, and 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 I wanted to, I did it. I I think uh, you know I can't really speak for my nineteen-year-old self, but I I don't think that I was imagining a career as an architect at that point. Uh, okay. I, I was I was more interested in art. It was also like the late nineties, and so. Mm -hmm. It was a moment in which a lot of the art that I was looking at uh, was very concerned with architectural uh, space, right? Mm -hmm. and so, you know, it's, like, it's, it's sort of the tail end of, of what we would now look back on as relational aesthetics. So you're looking at artists like Dominique Gonzalez Forrester or, or right. Pierre Wieg or Jorge Pardo. The first job I had after I graduated from college was working for Andreas Attell. So in this space, where there, there was a very fertile kind of gray area between the two uh, at that time. Um, and, and I'm still really interested in that sort of uh, as an educational model. Um, yeah. But, but I, ha I think I had a, a clear sense even at that age that I didn't want to kind of go through the paces of, of working as an architect. And I wasn't, it's not an environment where I would really thrive. I think I've always uh, been slightly more independent, and and uh, and and so I think that in the back of my head I was working towards m making art, but but I was interested in kind of doing it with this architectural education. How do you think that architectural education influenced your your work in in the art world? Um, and I, basically, I'm just asking you to talk more about kind of your interest in the, the pedagogical model. But how do you think that influenced both how you thought about the art you were making and then, you know, how that was kind of positioned and, and lived in the world? Well, I talk about this a bit. And, and there's a passage in the book where this comes up and, and where how where I, I talk about how I had the sort of good fortune of entering the art world at a time when Right. People were really interested in design. And so right. uh, the, 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 you know, that was, um, there, you know, I'm sure there are other times where people might have entered the art world as a poet or as a dancer when those things were kind of more in fashion. And it just happened to be mm. this curiosity at the moment, which, which I think I imagine made certain things easier for me. I think it allowed me having not gone through a kind of traditional art school program, it allowed me to take a slightly different approach to a studio practice because I had never really, you know, learned how to paint a painting or to make a sculpture. You know, I kind of had this other set of skills and ways of thinking that I could bring to bear on the work that I was making. Um, not, but none of, not, that's not terribly unusual. I think a lot of the most interesting artists often come from with outside of that art school structure. But, uh, you know, I, it, I think it informed a lot about the way that I think. And it's funny, you know, a lot of this book actually was um, developed on, pinned up on a wall. And it's, mm. and it's funny looking at it now, how much the way that I, the way that I pinned the book up on the wall is kind of this perfect recreation of that classic, architecture school pin up right um and which i hadn't even thought of until after the fact but uh thinking on using thinking on verticals two-dimensional yeah. vertical space yeah. like that is is such a um 
method of architecture education. How did writing kind of fit in here? You'd mentioned earlier that you kind of had made this decision that you were going to take a year to write something. Um, were you, had you always been writing throughout this, this kind of art practice or how does that connect yeah. to this work? Um, well, writing had always been part of what I was doing. Um, I'd never, I, I have no formal education as a writer really, but I, I grew up with a writer. My mother's a poet and, hmm. and, uh, uh, it's always been a useful way for me to kind of work through what I'm right. thinking about the, the sort of lead up. And I think this is relevant to what you're asking to this project was that, uh, was finding myself at a point in my career as an artist where I had, you know, I was doing everything that I was supposed to be doing. You know, I was, I, I think I can, ha I was having what could fairly be described as a sort of fine career as an artist, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and, but I, but I was very conscious somehow of the fact that there were all these people who were 10 years further along in the process than I was, who were really struggling. And, um, mm. you know, there's, there's so much kind of speculative energy in the art world now and so much excitement about what's new that it's, it's relatively easy to get a lot of attention when you're just starting out. And then there's this kind of natural dip. Uh, and, right. and, and I was always sort of watching these people who were older than me as they kind of encountered that doldrums period. And it was hard to kind of discern exactly what it all meant. But what was clear to me from watching other people was that the, the, the people who had continued to do the same thing that they were doing over and over again mm -hmm. were, were really unhappy. And the people yeah. who had figured out some way to make a pivot within their practice uh, were the ones who were thriving. And so mm. it was with that idea in mind that quite out of the blue, I found myself in this experience where the, this gallery that was owned by uh, Jane or Nina was flooded horribly in Hurricane Sandy. And I was pulling all these uh, sculptures, objects, paintings, photographs that were made by friends right. out of the basement and just found myself thinking, God, this is such an insane way of communicating with the world, like making these big mm. cumbersome things that, you know, take up so much space and are so hard to make. And it, that, that was really what kind of solidified in my mind this idea that maybe the next thing for me was going to be something that was more immaterial. Huh. Yeah. And that kind of gave me the idea to, to think about this writing project. I still, at that time, I still had kind of two years of commitments to finish work for shows or whatever. So it, it, I didn't jump right into the writing. But that's where the sort of germ of the idea was to try and explore what I was thinking about in a less material way. Um, Do you see the book and, and, and the writing process and putting this book together as related to your art practice and the art that you were doing? How do you see those as connecting? I see them as totally related. I see them <clears> as the same thing. I, and And, you know, from the just from the day-to-day -day perspective, you know, I, I go to the same studio in the morning and I, and I 
work in the same space and I'm thinking about the same things. And so on one level, it feels to me uh, like an incredibly logical extension of the practice that preceded it and, uh, you know, all part of a whole. I, mm -hmm. I, I know the on the outside, people don't see it that way. And, and I think that, you know, of course, I understand that. At a certain level, I, I feel like you start working on a project and you don't know necessarily if the best way to realize it is as a, as a series of sculptures or as a, as a photograph or as a, as, a book, as a book, right? And so right. At, at, at one level, I think this is a project that just needed to take the form of a book. Uh, of course, uh, you know, I've spent now five years working on that book and, and have been forced kind of reluctantly to, to self-identify as a writer. And so, <laughs> so, so um, you know, the world may not see it the same way, but I think in the, in the long term, my hope is that, uh, you know, with decades of retrospect, looking back, it will all feel like part of a kind of cohesive practice. Yeah, yeah. You, you just said you spent five years working on this. It's out now. You're obviously doing doing press for it. What's next for you? Where where do you see this work? You know, kind of going going forward. What are you thinking about now? I'm kind of curious. When you wrap up a project like this, how you think about what comes next? Yeah. Um, well, you have to time, find time to think about it. I think that the the one of the things that very naively I hadn't anticipated as the author of a book was um, just how much time goes into yeah. to yeah. the 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 months after it's public, <laughs> published, which has been actually really fun, and and I've learned a lot um, both about the book and about myself doing all of it. So I, you know that's great, but I haven't had a ton of time to concentrate on what's next. I think that there will be another book. Um, mm. You know, I have some ideas about what form that might take, but I'm not sure I'm totally ready to jump right into it. So I, I've, I've been thinking about making some objects and, and, and kind of returning to that side of the mm. studio practice a bit as well and kind of f figuring a way out for those two things to coexist. Um, yeah. But I love that. Uh... I think that's a good way to end. So I'm going to ask you my last question, which I used to end all of these. I'm curious what you're reading right now. Oh, right. Um, right now I'm uh, reading Colson Whitehead's book, Harlem Shuffle. Uh, and yeah. uh, I'm also reading this really extraordinary little book about Sarah Penn and her uh, store, Knob Carey, that was in the East Village. It's this kind of oral history that was compiled by uh. a woman called Svetlana Quito uh, as part of a show that was at the sculpture center. Um, but I just, I, you know, I, it's funny. I feel like there were so many projects kind of cooking during COVID that there, that there's this, all these books are now coming out that I yeah. really, I'm excited to read. So I, you know, I feel like I, I just got Tasha Cole's new book, yep. Keller Easterling's new book, Tom McCarthy's new book. Uh, I feel like there's a lot, a lot to read, but yeah. I, yeah, you and me both. I just finished Tissue Cole's new book. Tom McCarthy's um, is is on my list also. And Keller's too. I love Keller. Yep. Um, Justin, like I said, I loved your book. It's one of my favorite books that I read this year. Um, and, and unlike any other kind of architecture-focused book that I've read, I hope 
I hope you do write another one and I hope more people write books that are like, <laughs> like your book, uh, if that's a, a weird thing to say. Um, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for doing so did this. I. Thank you, Jared. And thank you for having me on the show. This episode was recorded on November 17th, 2021. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.